As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Welcome to a special Cradio interview. I'm Philip Brooks. Today we sit down with international Catholic apologist Tim Staples, who's been travelling around Australia along with Father Larry Richards as part of Perusia Media's Fullness of Truth tour. We ask him all about the 2020 Plenary Council coming up in Australia and speak about sacred music, women priests and communion in the hand. This interview was done on location at the Perusia Media office in Dural, New South Wales, just before Tim spoke at the Culture Project's Restore Night. That Restore Night should be going live in a few weeks, but in the meantime, we have the three Capuchin Youth Festival talks given by Father Wojcik going live very soon, Brenton Malone's Restore Night talk on community going up next week on Wednesday, and two talks by Daniel Hill in the next month, one on the Crusades recorded at UTS, and the other on Beauty, which was a Restore Night. So there's a lot of great content to look forward to. We also had Father Manez's Demonology 101 talk go up this week, which is really excellent, so definitely check that out. But first, let's get into this interview. So today we're joined by a powerhouse of Catholic apologetics, author of Behold Your Mother, a biblical defense, a biblical and historical defense of the Marian doctrines, all the way from Catholic Answers in San Diego, Tim Staples. Thanks for coming, Tim. It is great to be with you, Philip. Thanks for having me. Thank you. How are you enjoying your trip in Australia so far? I am absolutely loving it, man. The hospitality here is amazing. Although I do have one complaint. I'm going to be at least six or seven pounds heavier when I get home. And that means I got to diet again when I get home. But, you know, it's phenomenal. I think Aussies have incredible hospitality. This is my fifth trip to Australia. And I can say every single time the hospitality is off the charts. Love these Aussies. That's so good. So, Tim, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do at Catholic Answers? Yeah, I am the director of apologetics and evangelization for Catholic Answers, which means I'm in the head of the department that gets the stuff done as far as apologetics goes. You know, I'm not in charge of publishing books and all that stuff, thanks be to God, because nothing would get published. But I'm in charge of ensuring that the product that we put out is orthodox, that our guys, all of our apologists, are prepared to do what they do. Um, I'm responsible, for example, for ongoing formation. I bring speakers in to Catholic Answers, small setting, to have ongoing. In fact, now that we have Father Hugh Barber Mm -hmm. as our chaplain and one Mm -hmm. of our apologists, he's a world-class scholar, we're in the middle right now of a, of a series, uh, a seminar series mm-hmm. on philosophy from a man who's been teaching philosophy for about 40 years or at least 30 years uh, at the seminary level. So that's the kind of things we do. And we'll do things like um, not long ago I had a rabbi, a local rabbi, come in and give some seminars to, to our apologists. And that was kind of fun because we got some back and forth, too, you know. Mm-hmm. But we have a good relationship with him. He wants me now to come to his synagogue and talk to his people. And, you know, so we do that kind of stuff. Love to have dialogues with people of all different religions. We do formal debates as well. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, as director, my responsibility is to ensure that the guys are locked on, that the stuff we're putting out is locked on, whether it's our magazine, our books, and Mm-hmm. Every, everything else. Now, it's not just me, obviously. We have a lot of guys at, at Catholic Answers, but as director, you know, I guess you could say 
a lot of the responsibility falls on me. Okay, that's awesome. So, Tim, you might know that we have um, a plenary council coming up in Australia in 2020. Yeah. Um, it's been advertised as addressing the following questions. So what are we as lay people called to do? Um, who are we called to be and how do we need to change? Right. Um, and so, you know, in the Catholic circles, especially with the young people, there's been a lot of confusion about what exactly a plenary council is yeah. and what it can address can you give some examples of, um, you know, maybe some past plenary councils, what, what exactly a plenary council is and what it can address? Sure. P plenary councils in the United States, we have not had a plenary council in a long time since the end of the 19th century. In fact, the Council of Baltimore, um, and that proved to be extremely fruitful because it ended in the, ba the famous Baltimore Catechism. That became the catechism for the United States and was responsible for the formation of literally millions of Catholic children. To this day, I use the Baltimore Catechism, and there are various different forms of it for adults, mm. for children. Yeah. I use it with my kids. But a plenary council then is something, it's really a, an exciting time for any nation or bishops conference that puts one on because a lot of times you don't exactly know where it's going to end. It's designed to deal with a lot of different issues, kind of open the doors, you know, want to hear from the lady. We want input from priests on the local level, local people, lady. Everything kind of gets put on the table. You discuss things. You know, people are shocked about the Catholics. You discuss things. You mean lady have an input? Of course. You know, but of course, ultimately, it's the bishops who decide, and in union with the Holy Father, what is going to become mandatory or, or any sort of changes that are going to happen. Or if we're going to have, for example, the, the catechism, you know, the Baltimore Catechism come out of. So, it, you know, I would say to you guys, man, this is an exciting time. I would say to all the Aussies, if, if the bishops want your input, give it to them. Mm. Give them the input, but remember, don't expect too much. Don't think, you know, we're going to change the church now because that's mm. not the purpose. There yeah. is a legitimate, you know, there, there are some folks who will, who will respond negatively and say, what are we doing having lay people involved? You know, that's not Catholic. Of course it's Catholic. You know, at Vatican Council II, the council invited Orthodox, Protestants, all sorts of folks to come and sit in. Now, they didn't have, you know, final authority over, over anything, but we mm -hmm. want input. The Council of Trent invited the Protestants to come, you know, because we want input into what we need to cover. That is mm -hmm. the church, the pope, the bishops, mm -hmm. in the case of an ecumenical council, of course, the pope and the bishops. But same principle here in a plenary council. I think it's wonderful that the, the bishops want the input of the laity. Just let's not get crazy about this, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's a good thing. No, it's good that you mention um, that, you know, there are some people who might be um, bargaining for a bit more than they can actually get. Right. Um, a few of the sort of ideas that have been going around in the early stages at the moment have been things like the ordination of women, mm -hmm. um, trying to get married priests, you know, petitioning the bishops for this sort of thing to be brought up at the council. Right. Um, and also things like um, a return to true beauty and orthodoxy in the church and a renewed focus on catechesis, which they say is the source of a lot of the issues in the church at the right. moment. Maybe you could talk about some of... Right. Yeah, you've covered a, a wide 
uh, variety of topics there. And that's a very important point because we have to make a distinction with regard to what a plenary council can and cannot do. Obviously, when it comes to women's ordination, this, this is an infallible teaching of the church. Women cannot, the famous document from the CDF, inter insignores in, in, in Latin, which I believe means among the signs. Um, it's a wonderful document the CDF put out, I think it was 75 or 76, beautiful doctrine, six essential reasons why women cannot be ordained. And they make the statement there, the church does not have the power to ordain women. Pope St. John Paul, of course, would kind of put the hammer down on it in mm -hmm. Ordinatio Sacerdotalis in 1994. So this is an infallible teaching of the church, and there are profound reasons for it, quite beautiful reasons, actually. It's not a put-down to women, you know, any more than it's a put-down to a man to say you can't have a baby, mm -hmm. right? It's because this is the way you're made. We have to understand that just as a man is made in a certain way and a woman is made in a certain way, she can do things that he can't and he can do things. That we have to see that context in the church, right? The, mm. the priest is not just kind of like a father. He is a father, mm. you know, in the image of God, the, the father. So, so to say a woman can be a father, what? That, that should be so alien to a Catholic, you know, of course a woman, I, I wrote an article on my website at timstaples.com. I invite everybody to go check it out. And the title is Call No Woman Father, right? Because, you know, that gets at the heart of things. You know, we're a family. The priest is a father. He also acts in persona Christi. Mm -hmm. He's not just like Christ. He's not playing Christ on the altar. He is Christ. And so it's metaphysically impossible for him to be a woman. You, what? He, he, in the in persona Christi, at any rate. So what we have to do is make these distinctions between what a plenary, plenary council can and can't do. Now, mm. when you open it up to the laity, though, to say we want to hear your concerns, of course you're going to get things like that because mm -hmm. some of the laity aren't formed well. They're going to say we want women's priests, mm. but what women as priests? But what you find is in a plenary council, this is a great teaching opportunity. This is an mm. opportunity for the church, then to draw the lady in and then deliver the goods and say, we love your input, but this is the reason why this can't happen, mm -hmm. right? So don't disparage people mm -hmm. making these requests. I think it's actually important that they do because then that opens up the door for not just catechesis, but evangelization, yeah. right? Now, when it comes to married clergy, that's a different animal. Theoretically, that's possible. Mm -hmm. I say theoretically, because it's a church law. Yes. This is not divine law. It's mm -hmm. a church law. Now, is it going to change? No. And I would bet the house. No. Why? Because the celibate clergy goes all the way back to Christ in this sense. In Matthew 19, 12, Jesus recommends celibacy. And in the context of the call of the apostles, mm -hmm. he recommends, he that can do this, ought to, mm. right? So he didn't make it divine law. It wasn't divine law. It was you ought to, right? right? Mm. And so Jesus is recommending it. St. Paul recommends it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the image of Jesus, St. Paul says, and, and it's interesting, in the context of people who work for the Lord, this is the context in which Paul says, the one who is celibate 
has more time to focus on the Lord and the things of the Lord, whereas the married person is divided because he has to take care of his family mm. and, and such. And so in that context, Paul recommends celibacy to those who are working for the Lord. So th that's why this goes all the way back to, to the apostles. Great book by a Jesuit, Father Cochini, mm -hmm. The Apostolic Origins of, of Priestly Celibacy. It's a great book where he you know, shows that it is apostolic in origin. It comes from Jesus through the apostles, but it's not divine law still. So that you can have in the church, for example, in the Eastern churches, mm -hmm. you know, priests are married. Mm -hmm. In the Latin church as well, we do have exceptions. Anglican mm -hmm. converts, sometimes Orthodox converts, yeah, right. mm -hmm. uh, can continue to be married. Not always. The church makes a decision case by case. I have a friend who was a validly ordained priest who became Catholic and petitioned the Holy Father to see if he could function as a priest, and the Holy Father said no. They investigated his case and said mm -hmm. no, and he wasn't happy about it. But that's the thing, you know, you have to submit mm -hmm. to, the, to the church on this. So, again, it's not going to change. It is for so many reasons, the recommendation of Jesus and re recommendation of St. Paul, the importance of, you know, the celibate as an eschatological sign I mean, people will say, you know, isn't celibacy the problem? It's why we have all this sexual dysfunction. You need married No, celibacy is not part of the problem. It's not even a little bit of the problem. It is an enormous part of the answer. When you have a question, don't get rid of the answer, okay? Mm. And why do you say that, Tim? Because cel the celibate is a sign to the world that sex is not the answer. Love is. And the world has so conflated sex with love that they think that's what love is. But no, love, ultimately, remember, love, you know, well, let's put it this way. Sex dies when we do, right? But love is eternal. Mm. You know, Jesus said they, are neither, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage in Luke chapter 20, right? In, in eternity. But do they love? Absolutely. And so the celibate is the one who points to a generation that has gone crazy with sex. Everything is sex. People, you can't be happy if you're not having sex, right? We need Mother Teresa. You know, we need Pope St. John Paul the Great. Mm -hmm. Here are two celibates who were the most joyful and influential people on the planet Earth. They're the ones that get people to think, wait a minute, they're not having sex. How can they be so happy? You know, so again, celibacy is not even part of the problem. There's, it is a huge part of the answer. So all of these things, though, it's great. Put your questions in there. And remember this as well. Sometimes things that bubble up from the laity do end up making changes in the church where uh -huh. there can be changes. I mean, there, and there's examples of, of that in our tradition. I mean, some, some that uh, a lot of folks may not be happy with today, but think of communion in the hand. I know for me, I prefer communion on the tongue. Mm. I, I, I say my kids will receive on the tongue as long as they're living under my roof. <laughs> <Right>? Yes. <laughs> uh, but 
at the same time, you know, what began as a desire of, of many among the laity and, and actually started as abuse, mm. some folks were doing it illicitly, the church considered, gave a 40-year experiment on allowing it, the 40 years is over, and the church continues to allow it. So, you know, for better or for worse, yeah. there are, in fact, I'll, last thing that, that I think is important for folks to understand there's a reason why we have eight major rites and 22 churches in the Catholic Church. Mm. How, could, how could one church become eight major rites and 22 churches? What? And that's because the liturgy historically organically grew. And when the church is planted in a particular culture, the liturgy is not so stasis that you force the culture into the mold of the liturgy. The opposite happens. There are certain aspects of the liturgy that are unchangeable, right? Very little, the words of institution, for example, but everything around it, or a lot around it, is changeable. And that's why when you go to a Maronite liturgy, it is very different than a Latin rite liturgy. You go to a Byzantine liturgy, it's very different. You see the similarities, but there, mm. there's so much freedom for there to be change. That's how we have all these rights. So don't get you know crazy about, oh, you can't change, right? Well, sure you can. You just can't change the essentials. And Holy Mother Church tells us what those essentials are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another, um, another sort of um, you know, big, big push at the moment, which I think is a bit more achievable for the Plenary Council is um, a return to sacred music, which ah, yes. people are holding very, very highly. We were just talking about the amazing scholar that um, is around in, in some places. Yes. And, um, you know, so people are, are quoting, there's a, there's a document in, in the Second Vatican Council that, yes. that says that, you know, Gregorian chant should hold pride of place in the yes. Roman liturgy. Sacrosanctum concilium. Yes, that's right. And, yeah. um, you know, so how do you think we got to a place where you know, even when the Vatican, the Second Vatican Council was yes. emphasizing its importance, we got to a, a state of the church as it is now. Yeah, well, I, I, I do believe, you know, um, His, uh, His Holiness, Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus, in his book, Spirit of the Liturgy, talks about this very thing, how that, you know, basically the, the council got hijacked. It got turned a bit in a wrong, wrong direction. Now, but we, we, even that statement needs to be clarified in, in this sense. When in Sacrosanctum Concilium, you had certain things like that, which are, are beautiful, Gregorian chant, the faithful need to learn it and know it. We should also know our parts in Latin, if we're Latin, right? Mm. How many know the creed in Latin? Oh, <laughs> right? We, we should know our parts. They were attempting a beautiful, I think, mix that was needed mm. we needed i mean even the great romano gardini long before vatican council ii one of the great minds in the church in the 1940s 1950s said it is time for the vernacular there were there were fathers at the council of trent who who petitioned for the vernacular. Of course, the church at the time said no, because of course of all the confusion with the Protestants who were you know, claiming it's not valid unless it's in the vernacular and all of that. There was crazy stuff going on, no, no, no. 
But the time had come. And I think Paul VI, when he promulgated the, the Roman Missal in 1969, he wrote a beautiful document that talks about this very thing and how, you know, Paul VI says we're, we're embarking on something revolutionary here. How can we leave behind the language of the angels, right? And of course, we're not leaving it behind. But he says, how this is the, 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 such a beautiful language. It's a, it's a dead language. And so it preserves the purity of the lit liturgy. You know, it doesn't change, and that's that's necessary. And we're going to leave. And he said many more beautiful things. That the, the sense of the oneness of the church. You can be in a, on a different continent, and you're saying the same words together. There's mm. so much beauty. It, by the time you finish reading the first part of his letter, you go, "Yeah, why are you going to the vernacular?" Mm -hmm. he's, he's like Thomas Aquinas. He presents the other side so well, you're convinced. Mm. But then he turns his guns, and he says. But even with all of that, he says, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 in an unknown language. Quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 14, St. Paul referring to tongues. I thought that was brilliant. He was, ah, the first time I read it, I was like, holy cow, that makes sense. It, it, you know, in this sense, we are, and he goes on to say, we are a religion of the word. And in order to enter into the Word, you have to understand the Word. It's not enough to have a translation next to you to where, okay, you're reading along and the priest is in Latin and you're doing it in English. Mm -hmm. There's a disconnect there. It's an imperfect relationship there. But by knowing the Word, you enter into the Word more purely. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have, though, people who know their parts, you're not asking them to understand. You don't have to learn Latin mm. to be able to recite your parts. You can learn the Our Father. You can learn the Creed so that when you're saying those words, you know what they mean. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? And so you got the best of both worlds. You preserve that unity. You pr preserve that unchangeability, that beauty. But at the same time, during the Roman canon, you're able to understand. So, I mean, the, the, the fathers of the council, it was brilliant what happened. And not just with regard to that, though. In so many other ways, we're only talking about one aspect, the Latin language, the Gregorian chant. There's so many other things we could talk about that the church called us to preserve, but it got jettisoned. Now, we have to remember this, that sometimes in these matters, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can move in the church and move us in a direction that even the fathers of the council did not see coming. When we're talking about ecclesiastical law, these are things that are not divine law. That can happen. And so the church, the Holy Father, has to be careful in not crushing the movement of the Holy Spirit. So there was a, a lot of things that were kind of allowed. There was experimentation, and I know it drives... You know, we Orthodox Catholics, crazy. Mm. But when the church allows things, you've got to give it some time and let things happen. And I think now we're at a point with Pope Benedict, for example, where he started really, and John Paul even before, started guiding the church back. Let's reconsider some of this, you know. And it's exciting mm. now because we're, we're with the change of the uh, translation, for example, that yes. Benedict finally... Mm incarnated in the church. It was a very good change. Oh my yeah. gosh, it's it's glorious. Mm. The, the English translation is so much better now mm. 
that's an example. We kind of went woo, a little bit too far over here. Okay, and now we're being pulled back over here, right? Ever so, so gently. Well, <clears throat> a plenary council is a time where lady can have their input and say, you know what, we we want a more beautiful liturgy. You know, we find that we've just gone too far in the party and the modern music and this, this it's just, mm-hmm. it's not conducive to worship. That's something the, the lady need to voice. Now, yeah. ultimately, it's the bishops in union with the Pope that will make the final decision. Mm-hmm. But this is a glorious time in Australia, man, to let those petitions be known. And just, look, we're lady, right? We're sheep. We're going to tell you. Be honest. Mm-hmm. Just let it all hang out there. And yeah, some people are going to bring up things that are, that are crazy. That mm-hmm. no, you can't do. It. Women's ornate, you can't do it, right? But I say, go for it. Go ahead and say it, and then we'll take you aside and explain. Let me explain. Let me give you the six reasons why women can't. Yes. But then when you you talk about, you know, my my kids are learning Gregorian chant, and they actually like it, mm-hmm. and and it's pulling them into. Wow, okay, maybe the bishops will consider that. And let's see about implementing this maybe in at least one parish in each diocese. Who knows what comes as a result of a plenary council? Yeah, so many opportunities. Yeah. Thanks, Tim, for being with us today. Um, Could we just ask you to pray for us here at Cradio and Perusia Media, for the whole team, and for the church in Australia, that the Holy Spirit would guide us on this journey through the plenary council. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the exciting things that are happening in the church. So many exciting things. The Plenary Council, of course, being one very important one that's happening here in Australia. We pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you would move the hearts of laity who perhaps haven't been involved in the church, that this would be sort of the impetus to bring them back into the family. And to give them a sense that they, they do have something to contribute. And we pray that you would guide the bishops in union with the Holy Father so that we would see changes that are lasting, that are good, that are holy, and that lead people to a deepened relationship with you. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Tim. I encourage all our listeners also to keep Um, you and your ministry at Catholic Answers in their prayers. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you, Philip. God bless you. You've been listening to Tim Staples, a Cradio-exclusive interview with Philip Brooks. To find out more about Tim, go to timstaples.com or to find out more about his ministry, Catholic Answers, go to catholic.com. And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.